All right, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 37 is where we're going to be. Genesis 37. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow on with the words that will be on the screen. Genesis 37, we're going to begin in verse number 12. Let's stand to get the blood flowing this morning, Genesis chapter 37, verse 12, the Holy Spirit says through Moses, now Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, that's Jacob, said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And Joseph said to him, here I am. And Jacob said to him, now go see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So Joseph uh, so Jacob sent him from the valley of Hebron, and Joseph came to Shechem. And a man found Joseph wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where, where, are, they, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and behold, before he came to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Uh, then we will say a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. When Reuben, who is the oldest, heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, cast him into this pit there in the wilderness, but, he, that he, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might, that Reuben might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to their father. And when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then the, then the Midianite traders, the Ishmaelite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guards. You may be seated. How many of you have ever driven from here to Orlando? Any of you? Any of you ever done that? All right, here's the, here's the biggest question I want to ask you. Which way do you go? Do you take 75 or do you take 17? Now, 75 has more miles but less turns. 17 has less miles. It's about 50 or so less miles but there are more stoplights, more turns, and I found out this week there are small town cops. <laughs> if y'all smelling what I'm stepping in, all right? But if you, if you go, you know, like if you have a phone and you use Waze, anybody use Waze in the room? It's, it's like the radar detector now, okay? You can see where the cops are. It's, it's right about half the time, okay? I found that out this week as well. <laughs> 
And then, then you have Apple Maps. Now, I don't know what you Android people use. I don't even know if they got maps on Android phone. I don't <laughs> but But here's, here's, let me show you what, what the options are. If you look here on the screen, here are the options. So Waze is, is on my left. I don't know what your left is, but you have Waze and then you have Apple Maps and it's pretty much the same time. Pretty much three hours, muscle manos. And everything seems to be three hours, Masomenos, unless there is a wreck or heavy traffic. And what happens is, is that if you're, if there's a wreck, GPS will kind of navigate you and it'll take you on a, on a detour. So the other day, this was actually a few months ago, I was driving up to Orlando and uh, took 17. And right before I got to Arcadia, you know, it's four lane, but right before I got to Arcadia, there was a, a bad wreck. And so the GPS machine says, you need to go around. So here's a detour. And so I followed uh, the GPS machine and it took me about 17 different turns. So, I mean, I'm there and I was at Hardy County or whatever, Hendry County, some county. Okay. <laughs> and so it took me down Bob's road and then I went down Sally street and finally, it took me down a dirt road, and it said, turn right at Farmer Brown's. There's two orange trees. Then it'll get right on to 17. I didn't literally say that, but it felt like that. And so after these 17 turns, it took me about 30 minutes longer to get there, which put me behind, which put me into I-4 traffic at the wrong time. I believe I-4 will be in Hades. I really do. I, I really do with all my heart. That's, that's your punishment for eternity, driving on I-4 forever, okay? I don't, you know, listen, here's the thing about detours. Detours are often not fun because they're not planned. But if you live long enough, you're going to go down a detour in life. It may be a breakup. Maybe a job loss. Maybe a sickness. You may tear your left Achilles playing Monday Night Football. It might be a financial crisis, it might be a hurt, it might be a car accident. But here's what I want you to understand. Rarely does God take someone to their destiny without a few detours in the way. But here's what you gotta understand, God uses detours. God uses detours to develop character and he uses detours to get you to your ultimate destination even in the moment you don't feel like it's the case. And we see this in the life of Joseph, that the life of Joseph is filled with detours. And yet each one of these detours is a part of the providential plan and purposes of God. Now, the theme for this series is the providence of God. And so let me give you a definition. The providence of God is an act of God's grace and kindness by which in his wisdom and power, he preserves and governs all the events of the lives of his creatures for their good and his glory. And so if you are a child of God, you have the protection of God's providence in your life. And yet, most of us don't live like that's the case. I mean, the question really is, do we trust God's good providence for our lives or do we not? And what would it be like for you and I to truly believe that God's plan for our lives is better than our plan for our lives? What would it be like if we believe that God's dream for us is better and bigger and deeper than our dream for us? And so what we're going to learn in this series in the life of Joseph is that God's plans are better than our plans. 
even if it involves a detour. And so this morning, here's, a, here's the message. In God's providence, we see that God planned a detour in Joseph's life and used it to fulfill his purposes for him. And that may be said of you today. In God's providence, God planned a detour in your life to fulfill his purposes for you. So let's unpack that. Number one, God planned the detour. Verse 12, we're now picking up in the story. Uh, jo jo Joseph has just told his brothers his dreams in which uh, the family is bowing down to him and he's a bright and shining star. Uh, and so his brothers have now gone out to work. Uh, Joseph stayed at home and his father uh, was a very wealthy man. He may not have been a very wise father, but he was a very wealthy man. And so his sons were tending the sheep, but they were tending the sheep 50 miles away. Shechem is about 50 miles from Hebron. Now, what's interesting, and, and this is for like those of you Bible nerds and scholars, is that Shechem is, is a big place in the life of Jacob and his family because just a few chapters prior, uh, Shechem is where Jacob's daughter Dinah is gonna be sexually abused by a man there. And the brothers of Dinah, are going to go to the town of Shechem and they are gonna essentially through some trickery, I don't wanna get into the details of that, uh, but they murder basically every man in town, take all the flocks, all the money, all the herds, and now Jacob through this basically murderous act of his sons is becoming wealthy and wealthier and the only thing that Jacob is worried about is, repu is his reputation in the area. So this is not a good dad, all right? And so Jacob now sends Joseph to check on his brothers because the last time they were in Shechem, things didn't go off too great. And so Joseph here obeys his father's command and he goes and checks on his brothers. But here's the thing. Joseph knows they can't stand him. Joseph knows they hate him. And so he goes anyway. Now, what Jacob didn't understand is that this would be the last time he would see his son for over 20 years. And so Jake, Joseph gets to Shechem. He goes and looks for his brothers, looks for the sheep, looks for the herds, couldn't find them. And so he's just kind of wandering around and there's this man that just kind of comes out of nowhere and says, hey, well, who are you looking for? And Joseph says, I'm looking for my brothers. And, and, and the guy says, hey, I know who your brothers are. They're not here, they're in Dothan. Now, not Dothan, Alabama, okay? They're in Dothan, Israel. And so this is about 15 miles north and so if you go up there, you can find your brothers. And so Joseph is gonna take a one or two night journey, day journey to go to see his brothers 15 miles away. So now he's 65 miles from home. And so as soon as Joseph finds where his brothers are, as soon as he's coming towards them, the Bible says that they see him. And when they see him, they all conspire together to kill him. Now, how did they recognize him? Glad you asked, coat of many colors, all right? And when they saw that coat, from that dreamer, they seethed with anger and jealousy. Now, Jacob should have been worried about the brothers more than they should, he should have been worried about the, brother, about the brothers killing Joseph than the brothers being killed themselves. And so in, in, in their mind, we're 65 miles away from home. Okay, there's no Life 360 on Joseph's phone. This is the perfect opportunity to kill the golden child. And so they say here, here comes the dreamer, and then they mumble, let's kill him. And so they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill the dreamer so that it would kill the dream. And then they wanted to throw him in the pit and tell their daddy 
that he was devoured by wild animals. But then a guy named Reuben shows up. Reuben is the oldest brother. He's the oldest son. And as the oldest son, he speaks a voice of reason. He says, rather than killing our brother, why don't we just throw him in the pit, leaving there, if he survives, it'll be a miracle. The pit was about 10, 15 feet deep. And so Reuben, what Moses tells us in commentary, is Reuben's big plan was this. Reuben was going to have the brother thrown in the pit. The other brothers were going to take off. Reuben was going to come back sometime later that evening, rescue Joseph, take him home to daddy, and say, look, I rescued your son. Aren't I a great, am I not a great kid? And then he would get the love of his father back. It was all an ulterior motive. And isn't it sad that Reuben had to do something like that so his daddy would love him? And so they follow the plan of Reuben. Verse 23, they see the dreamer. The dreamer comes in. The Bible says that they strip him of his robe. That word strip is a, is a Hebrew word. It's very violent. It means like to skin an animal. They ripped that thing off of him, shredded it. It was the symbol of his father's love, and they couldn't stand it. And then they cast him or threw him into a pit. That word to cast means to uh, like, like a dumping a dead body. They just dumped him in the, in the pit. Now this pit was either for water, like a, like a cistern for water or a cistern for grain. It could even been a, a toilet, probably for water. It was dried out. So here they have thrown their 17-year-old brother, pretty much stripped of his clothing, into a pit that he cannot get out of. He's screaming and crying, trying desperately to beg them to let him out. And in verse 25, they thought that this would be the right time to eat lunch. I mean, you gotta eat. I mean, who do you are? You can't get far unless you eat. And so they sit down and they are cold and callous to their brother's cries. And while they're eating, this caravan of traitors, um, you know, uh, were there. And Judah, who is the brother, uh, you know, he's business savvy. He says, you know what? You know, rather than killing Joseph, let's just sell him into slavery. And right? I mean, you maybe never thought of killing your sibling, but maybe you thought about selling your sibling to slavery. I don't know. And so rather than kill his own brother, he says, why not make a little money off of him? I mean, this little brat, I mean, why as well, you know, get a little bit out of him. And then that way we can say we didn't kill him. And so Judah, whatever he said, made all the other brothers pretty happy. And so they sell him for 20 shekels of silver, which was a price for a younger slave in that day. And so for some reason, Reuben left. Maybe he went to go get a Reuben sandwich. I don't know. <laughs> he comes back looks in the pit, sees his brothers, Joseph is gone, and now he knows that his brothers have done something really, really dumb. Because for Reuben, as the oldest, he was responsible for the family. And so he is now fearing his father's wrath when he was hoping for his father's love. And so in verses 31 through 33, he plans a cover-up. And what he does is he takes that coat that has been ripped off of Joseph's body, dips it in the blood of a goat, and then puts it in a UPS package, overnights it to Jacob, and says, hey, you know, we happen to find, there's a little note in there that says, hey, we happen to find a coat of many colors, and one of the colors was blood red. Do you know whose coat this might be? 
See, there was no DNA to know that that was goat. They were covering it up. And so the Bible says in verse 34 that when Jacob got this, he tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. He's devastated. I mean, about two years prior to this, he lost the love of his life, Rachel. Now, fast forward, he's losing the, the, the love of his life in Joseph, the son of Rachel. And now he's devastated. His whole emotional center has come collapsing in on himself. And listen, we know it's very unnatural for a parent to lose a child. But there is some irony in this because his sons are tricking him. They're punking him. They, they, they're tricking their father but a few years before, Jacob did the same thing to his father. He tricked his father. Chuck Swindoll says, what a tragic consequence for Jacob. Jacob sowed the wind and now was reaping the whirlwind. He says, I can't help but wonder what went through Jacob's mind that night as he alone tossed and turned through the torturous hours. Did he realize his own failure as a father? And so while the brothers are returning home, while Jacob is devastated, his life seems to be completely over. Uh, his dream of having this son whom he saw would be his heir, so he thought it would be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It's now over. And so while that's going on, verse 36, Moses tells us that meanwhile, Joseph is now in Egypt, and he sold to Potiphar, who's an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of of the guard. Joseph's no longer in Canaan now, he's in Egypt. And the dream that he had of his family bowing down, now it seems to be shattered. The vision that, that he had seems to now be over, that, that his dream is now dead, that his life is, he has known it as the comfortable, favorable, easy life is gone. He's now a slave in another country far from home. See, in real time, if you were Joseph in this moment, you, you, would seem, you would think that God is nowhere to be found. And that there just seemed to be a series of coincidences that all just happened at once. I mean, Joseph just happened to be asked by his dad to go check on his brothers. And Joseph, as he goes 50 miles away, just happens to go to Shechem. And while he was wandering around, some man shows up at the right place at the right time who knew exactly where his brothers were. And then Reuben just so happens to decide to intervene and save his brother from death. And just so happened that there was a waterless pit nearby that would be a, a great place to hold Joseph. And it just so happened that Reuben decided to go get a Reuben sandwich somewhere. And it just so happened that the Ishmaelite, the Midianite traders showed up right at lunchtime, right where the brothers were eating lunch. And it just so happened that the Midianites happened to be heading to Egypt. And it just so happened that in Egypt, there was a guy named Potiphar who needed a slave. Do you think those things are just mere coincidences? I mean, think about this. If any one of those things didn't happen exactly how that happened, everyone in that family would have died. See, as you read chapter 37, 
God's name is not mentioned anywhere. But his fingerprints are everywhere. Because Joseph was exactly where God wanted him to be. Do you understand that God is never a victim of, of circumstances? That God is providentially in control of every circumstance. Dr. Tony Evans said that nothing is random with God. See, from God's vantage point, everything made complete sense. Even though it didn't make sense to Joseph at the time. And in reality, it was actually better for Joseph to be where he was in the center of God's plan than to be where he shouldn't be out of God's plan. See, do you understand that God is as much in control of the trauma and the difficulty and the pit and the pain as he is in the dream? Now, we, we'll unpack this more as this story unfolds, but I want you to understand that God does not cause evil. God does not cause evil, but he overrules evil so that it ultimately destroys itself. See, God was not going to allow anything to destroy the plan that he had for Joseph. And the same is true with you. God's not going to allow anything, child of God, to destroy the plan that God has for you. So neither Democrats or Republicans or wokeism or Putin or China or Iran or Hollywood or conspiracy theories are going to destroy the plan that God has for your life. Because there's never panic in heaven. There's always plans. See, God's love is just as active in the apparent absence as it is in anything else. See, when it feels like God is absent, he is most present ever. Corey Tim Boone, one of my heroes, she said this. She says that there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. See, God loved Joseph before he went into the pit. And God loved Joseph while he was in the pit. And God loved Joseph after he got out of the pit. But that still didn't mean that God didn't plan for Joseph to be in the pit. It was all planned. So I want you to understand the detour in your life. God didn't cause the evil. But he overrules the evil to follow the plan he has for your life. Which gets me to the second thing. And the second thing is this. Is that God had a purpose in the detour. See, we'll never understand fully this side of eternity, all that God has purposed. But I want you to understand, if he's planned it, he's got a purpose for it. There's no such thing as pointless suffering. There's no such thing as, as purposeless problems. But here's what I want you to understand, that a detour does not mean a rejection of your dream. See, Joseph, when he was 17, when he got this dream... He probably thought, this is going to be pretty quick and it's going to be pretty easy. I mean, look how awesome I am. But when his dream of being the shining star in the family didn't happen when he thought it would happen, and it didn't happen how he thought it would happen, maybe Joseph thought in his mind, when he was in that pit, or when he was riding to Egypt, or when he was sold into slavery, maybe he thought in his mind, you know what, God's finished with me. The dream is dead. But reality is, God wasn't finished with Joseph. He was just getting started with Joseph. See, the pain that Joseph experienced wasn't an illusion. The pain that you're experiencing right now with whatever you're going through is not an illusion. It was real. 
And at the time that Joseph was in the pit and at the time that Joseph was now a slave to Potiphar, he didn't have the luxury to know what you and I know. See, we have DVR. We know the end of the story. We can watch it as it unfolds, but we know the end is the end. Joseph didn't have that. Joseph never in his life imagined and envisioned that God's plan for his life was going to involve a pit and Potiphar's house. And what he may have thought the detour meant was that he was going to miss it is really what was going to get him there on time. See, the mistake that you and I make is this. The mistake that we make because we're Americans and we live in the American dream bubble and we live here in Naples is that we believe that determining God's will for our lives is based on what is most comfortable, acceptable, and rationally obvious. And so we, we say this in ourselves. Well, listen, if this isn't comfortable or this isn't acceptable or this isn't rationally obvious, then it can't be God's will for my life. Well, let me just share with you something. That's not in the Bible. Okay, God's will for your life and his plan for your life is not that you are healthy and wealthy and happy. God's plan for your life is bigger than that. But just because you are a child of God doesn't mean your life is going to be comfortable, easy, and acceptable to you. The Bible teaches that those who live for Jesus will suffer persecution. The Bible says, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. See, just because something isn't comfortable, acceptable, or obvious doesn't mean that God isn't working. As a matter of fact, it may mean God's working more than we know. Eric Metaxas uh, writes a book. He, he wrote two books. One is seven men, about seven men in, in church history, and the other one is about seven women. In his book, Seven Way, Women, he, he talks about seven courageous women of faith. And one of them is one of my heroes, a woman by the name of Corey Timboon. Uh, Corey Timboon lived in Harlem, Netherlands. And um, her and her sister and her family uh, saved and protected Jews uh, from Nazi Germany. They also protected political dissidents. I've been to her home in Harlem. I've been to the upper room, the hiding place, the place where she hid uh, dozens and dozens of people from Nazi Germany and their, uh, and their plans of destroying them. Well, in time, her family was caught. Her dad actually dies in a holding cell of pneumonia because of his mistreatment. Betsy is her sister and Corey, they're both in their early 40s. They're hauled away to a concentration camp in Ravensbrück. And there in that concentration camp, they go through some of the most humiliating circumstances ever. Not only were people that they knew beaten and raped and abused, but they were also gassed and burned alive. It was terrible. But all of that aside, the living conditions were deplorable. One of the terrible things that Corey talks about that they had to live with was, was lice and fleas. And it was so bad that Corey was to the point where she just couldn't make it anymore. She looked at Betsy and like, I, these fleas, I can't handle it. And Betsy looked at her and 
says we need to thank God for the fleece. And Corey said, how in the world would I ever thank God for these fleece? A few days later, in their barracks, the women in the barracks were having a worship service. They had smuggled a Bible. They were worshiping and praying and praising God. And while they were having this secret worship service, a couple of the guards were walking by the barracks and they were scared to death. They were scared that because if the guards would have just come in, they would have confiscated the Bible, beat the women, and maybe killed them. But the guard didn't come in. And really, the guards never came into the barracks. You know why? Because of the fleece. They didn't want to be around the fleece. And it dawned upon Corey. That even in the fleas, God was working. Can you thank God for some fleas in your life? That even though you don't understand why God allowed those things to happen to you or why things you hoped would happen for you didn't happen how you hoped they would, that could it be possible that God was doing a bigger work in your life than you realize? Could it be that instead of rejecting you, he was actually protecting you? There's an old hymn that says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, nor try his works in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make things plain. See, when we cannot understand why we would ever be the object of such difficulty, pain, or suffering, we must recognize that God is on the throne and is providentially interested in the affairs of your life and he does so with love and care. The, the pain, the detour that is happening in your life is not God's rejection of you, but it might be God's redirection of your dreams. See, the detour may be a redirection. See, for Joseph to be the man of God that God envisioned him to be, God had to develop him into it. The way that God often develops you and develops your character and makes you the person that he wants you to be is through detours, dead ends, and disappointments. See, God had to put Joseph in a place where his own dreams would die so that he would embrace God's dream for his life. Sometimes God leads you to that place where it seems that you have to die to your dreams so that you can embrace God's dreams. And what sometimes we think is God's punishment is actually God's refinement. That in this moment, God was protecting the 17-year-old Joseph from himself. Had God not intervened in this moment, the trajectory of Joseph's life was going to be far worse had God not. Because had God not done what he did in Joseph's life, Joseph would have maybe lived to be 40, but he would have died in a famine. As a spoiled, rotten, self-righteous brat. See, God had to strip him of that to save him from it. You know, sometimes the most loving thing God can do for us is to allow us to go through disappointment. When I was in college, I was a student pastor of a, of a church out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it was in Nancy, Kentucky, White Oak Baptist Church in Nancy, Kentucky. It's one of the oldest churches in the state of Kentucky. And I was there. I mean, Nancy, if you don't know where Nancy is, you're not alone. You go to nowhere and you turn left about 20 miles, you'll hit it. <laughs> so I was a student pastor, and in one year, 
as being student pastor, we saw God do some amazing things. We saw 65 high school students trust Jesus Christ as their savior and be baptized in one year. We were growing. And I thought I was pretty awesome. I mean, I know you do too, but, but I really struggled with it. So the pastor that was there who hired me retired. His name's James Floyd. They hired a new pastor. The new pastor decided that the best thing for everybody was for me to not be the student pastor anymore. And to be quite honest with you, I was devastated. But also was a very self-righteous person. And I look, at the time, it was terrible. At the time, it was painful. But I thank God for it. Because it was that moment and many other moments that happened thereafter that God used to humble me, to break me where I am today. And I will tell you, had I not been fired, had I not let, been let go, I probably wouldn't be here today. Because what I thought was a setback was really a setup. Could it be that God is big enough to allow you to go through some disappointments because they're divine appointments? See, detours are God's learning centers. They are institutes where God instills divinely constructed principles for your advancement and personal growth. Listen, a detour is not, does not mean that God hates you. A detour means that God loves you too much to allow you to continue being the same person you've always been. Amen. See, a detour is not a rejection of, of you. It's a redirection of your dream so that it ultimately realizes God's dream. See, what the brothers thought was killing Joseph well, what they thought was going to kill the dream was actually the first step in fulfilling everything that God had dreamed. <laughs> I mean, think about it. They tried to get rid of the dreamer, and in getting rid of the dreamer, they were fulfilling the dream. See, when, when we think things are falling apart, they're falling in line. The, the Puritan John Flavel said this. He said, providence is best but he says, providence is like a Hebrew word. It's best read backwards. You may not see God's hand in the moment. You may not see God's hand in the details. But just because you don't see his hand doesn't mean he's not involved. As Corey Tim Boone said, when you cannot trace his hand, you can always trust his heart. Because in this moment, God's purposes were unfolding. Now, if you do not know the story of Joseph, this is a spoiler alert. So if you don't know the whole story, if you don't want to know it, if you want to kind of go with us together, then I would say just do this. Okay? So let me tell you the story. Had Joseph not been put into a pit, he would have not been sold into slavery. Had he not been sold into slavery, he would not have gone to Potiphar's house in Egypt. Had he not gone to Potiphar's house in Egypt, he would have not met Mrs. Potiphar. 
Had he not met Mrs. Potiphar, he would not have gone to jail. Had he not gone to jail, he would not have met the butler and the baker. Had he not met the butler and the baker, he would have not had access to Pharaoh. Had he not had access to Pharaoh, he would not have had the ability to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Had he not interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, he would have not been able to save Egypt from famine. Had he not been able to save Egypt from famine, he would have not been able to save his family from death. And had he not been able to save his family from death, he would have not, there would have not been a nation of Israel. And had there not been a nation of Israel, there would be no Jesus. And if there were no Jesus, we would be in hell. So God had a purpose in the pain. And that purpose was to bring Jesus. And Jesus would walk a harder path than Joseph to save us from eternal death. Like Joseph, Jesus would be sent by his father to rescue a world that hated him. Like Joseph, he would leave his father's house he would leave his favored position. Like Joseph, he would be stripped of his robe, thrown into a pit, and sold for silver. But unlike Joseph, he wouldn't be sold into slavery. But he would die on the cross, abandoned and all alone. But that was not the end of Jesus' story. Because on Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead, bringing an eternal happy ending to all who trust in him. Amen. See, we may not know what happens in the next chapter of our lives. You may not know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. But we know what happens in the last chapter. Because Jesus won at the cross and the empty tomb, we know that we're going to win. You know, it's hard to enjoy the story when you're in the middle of it. Those of you who are going through cancer, those of you who are going through the pain of divorce, those of you who are suffering a financial loss, in the middle, seems terrible. Talk to a person who is a medical doctor who just a few months ago decided to move her, what she practiced in and focus on this particular situation and then she found out recently that the thing that she is now gonna give her life to treat is the very thing she has. that she may die from. You might be in the middle of your story right now and it may feel like a nightmare, a horror film. But because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you can know for certain that happily ever after is coming for you. The question is, will you trust in God? Back in the olden days, we used paper maps to get around. You remember those big atlases, Rand McNally? I mean, you middle schoolers and high schoolers in the room, back in the olden days, that's how you found out where places were. Today, we use something called GPS. 
And so I would dare venture to say that if you've ever gone somewhere you've never been before, you probably use some version of GPS. A, few mo- a couple of months ago, I was with Aaron, or with Andrew and Anna uh, in April, and we were in uh, Pennsylvania, and, and I wanted to take Andrew and Anna to Philadelphia. April had a friend, and so she hung out with her friend, and I wanted to take them to see the great historical sites in the city of, of Brotherly Love the city of Philadelphia. And so we went to the famous places. We went to the historical places. We, we went to Rocky's statue there in the art museum. <laughs> we went to Independence Hall. We went to the Liberty Bell. We saw the crack, still there. But there was one place, one historical place that they, that my kids, like, you cannot, you had, they had to see it. It's, it's such got great history. It's Gino's cheesesteaks. The kids needed to experience cheese whiz. And so I typed into the GPS machine, Gino's steaks. And it said that it would take me 25 minutes to go a mile and a half. It's pouring down the rain. And so we get in a rental car. We follow the GPS. It takes me down one street. It takes me down another street. It takes me to a very sketchy part of town, if you know what I'm talking about. We made sure the doors were locked. Finally, all of a sudden, we see this in all its glory and there's nowhere to park. (laughs) And so we find, we go down another five minutes of driving or whatever, and we find, by God's grace, thank you, Jesus, a place to park. It is pouring down the rain, monsoon. So we find a place to park, we get out, and I don't really know where Gino's is now. And so I put it in the GPS machine, we walk back, we get there, and there we are, and there we have, we we were able to, here's the thing, I realized when I walked up there that it's a cash-only place. (laughs) By God's grace, I happened to put 40 bucks in my pocket, all right? And there my kids are, and there was a happy ending, right? For the glory of God, right? The expansion of the kingdom. But if you've ever been somewhere you've never been before, if you ever want to go somewhere you've never been before, you normally rely on GPS to get you there. And I had this thought in my mind. Do I trust GPS more than I trust God? Do I trust GPS's directions more than I trust God's providence? Let me tell you something. Siri doesn't love you. Alexa doesn't love you. Waze doesn't love you. Listen, GPS doesn't know who you are. GPS could care less who you are. GPS doesn't know anything about you, doesn't know anything about your family, doesn't know anything about your life. GPS is wrong some of the time. But God is wrong none of the time. And he knows you and he loves you and he cares for you and he's got a plan for you. The question is, do you trust a silly machine or do you trust the God who made the machine? Who knows you better, you or God? Who sees the bigger picture better, 
you or God? Who's got a better plan for you, you or God? The answer is God. Trust in God, not yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the empty tomb. Help us to trust you more. I sought the Lord and he heard and he answered. Lord, you have always been there and you will never change. Help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing about this faithful God.